Are y'all excited to be here? Say yes. Man, I tell you what, after this worship service, if you're not ready to go, I don't know what I can do to help you. Praise the Lord. It's been a good day. Amen. So let me, uh, let me get started. I think it is providential that I get the pulpit on this particular Sunday. Now, let me say that I was not scheduled to preach this particular Sunday. Pastor Andy was, but he had some obligations he had to keep. So he called me last week and said, hey, would you take this Sunday? And I said, sure. And who would have thought that I get the service today? Now, there was a little basketball game played last night. I don't know if y'all noticed. But there was a winning color. And in case you didn't see that winning color, I wanted to show it to you once again. Now, be careful. I'm part of the family. Now, I'll admit, I told the guys, Tennessee has the ugliest color orange that's ever made. I understand. But when you're born and raised in Tennessee, it's in your blood. But, you know, with every winning color, there has to also be a losing color. Now, I'm going to... I'm going to do y'all something this morning. This was given to me, and it's too small, I can't wear it. It's really nice. It's a, if you like blue UK stuff. The first one after service who comes up to me and sings Rocky Top in a very passionate way, I'll give this away to the first person who is a Kentucky fan that sings Rocky Top. You get a free jersey this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> y'all not excited about it? I thought everybody would be in a good mood this morning. We love you, Warts and All. We love you, Warts and All. All right. Uh, I just had to have some fun. You know, until halftime last night, I didn't have any idea of doing this. But as the game kept going, I told Sheila, I'm going to get to have a little fun tomorrow morning. So it is just a game. So, all right, let's turn our uh, note to a serious note. Um, I want to talk to you just about 30 to 45 seconds about uh, our plans for communion, something that we should have brought to you earlier. Uh, We believe that the Lord's table is very important in the life of the church. And we had planned and scheduled to have communion on Christmas Sunday. But because everyone was so sick, we thought better of that. We did not want to be the reason that people continued to get sick because it's a very participatory uh, event. So we have scheduled communion for the final Sunday of this month. We wanted to get through the book of James uh, and through that series and then do communion because something else that we believe, we believe that the Lord's table, that service is so special that the entire service will be built around coming to the Lord's table together. It won't just be something that we add in normally. So we're going to get through this month. Hopefully everyone will be well. And on the final Sunday of the month, we will come to the Lord's table together. I believe Pastor Andy is going to bring that service that Sunday. And I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be a special time. Make plans. All right. All right. Let's get to the Word this morning. Show me your Bibles, please. Let me see your Bibles. All right. All right. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Uh, James was written to help an immature group of believers become mature in their faith. That's why the letter is all about growing in a faith that perseveres, that resists temptation, a faith that is obedient, a faith that speaks and acts rightly, a faith that loves, and a faith that is filled with good works. James uh, is a contrast between the spiritually immature and the spiritually mature. And he does a great picture, does a great job of painting a picture of what it means uh, to grow in your faith, but also to show the picture of what it means when you're not growing in your faith. Uh, if you were with us last Sunday, you may remember that we looked at the passage at the end of chapter 4 where uh, it dealt with how the immature believers dealt with making plans and decisions uh, about God's will for their life. They would go about their daily routine making decisions and plans as though God didn't exist. They were basing their decisions upon themselves and not upon the Lord. 
In contrast to that, the spiritually mature uh, would make plans and decisions, if you remember that phrase, as the Lord wills. It's a really cool thing uh, that Dr. Wearsby brought up that I read to you last Sunday. Well, today, we don't really see a contrast. Rather, we see a fairly harsh rebuke to those who have money and who deal with that money wrongly. It is one of the strongest passages in all of James, and I would dare say it's one of the strongest passages that you'll find in the entire New Testament. Now, I realize no one got out of bed this morning and said, man, I can't wait to get to church and hear a sermon rebuking rich people on how they use their money. Trust me, I understand. I get it. The pastor team gets it. There are times when we're prepping for sermons and we read the text and we go, oh, wow. Oh, wow. How do we present that text in the proper way? How do we preach this in the right way? Well, this, again, is one of the reasons that the main focus of our teaching is going to be verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That way, the pastor team can't become chicken and skip the hard stuff. We have to deal with the difficult passages because our goal is to preach the entire counsel of the Word. Now, our passage today doesn't deal so much with money as it does with the misuse of money, especially the, the um, selfish, self-centered use of money. And it deals with the rich. Now, I know what everybody's going to say. Everybody's going to say, oh, this passage deals with the rich. Well, that, that's not me. I'm not rich, Pastor Ron. So this passage doesn't really deal with me. Well, if it's okay, and even if it's not okay, I'm going to do what I can to rebuke, uh, to, uh, to disprove those two myths here in just a moment. So let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together, and especially that I don't mess this up too badly, and let's just see what the Lord has for us. Father, we are grateful for the day that you have created. We rejoice and we are glad in it. Father, there are people here from every different direction. They've had great weeks. Some have had very difficult weeks. Some have, have faced difficult decisions and uh, things that have happened in their lives. Father, may your grace wash over them. May they be able to say in Jesus that they are free, free forever. They're free. And may they rejoice in your glory. Guide us today, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 5. Let's unpack this and see what we find. And let's have some fun. I mean, we get to come together today. There's not going to be a test at the end of this. Uh, unless y'all want a test, I can put one together if you'd like. Uh, I mean, we're getting to learn the Bible today. So let's, let's read James chapter 1, uh, James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6, and let's see what the Lord has to say to us. James says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous pers person. He does not resist you. Like I said, sometimes you read the passage and you go... Wow, that's tough. And this is one of those passages. So we must ask, what is James trying to do? What is his goal in writing his letter to these believers? Again, he is dealing with a group of immature Christians who have been blessed with a certain level of resources, 
but the way they are using those resources proves that they have an immature faith. Now, let me stop here and say this. There is no biblical admonition against having wealth. There is none. It never says in the Bible that God is against those who have wealth. There is a biblical admonition against how that money is used, however, and this is what James is doing. There is also no biblical teaching against saving because there's an attitude here that they're hoarding all their resources. There's no biblical teaching against saving. In fact, the Bible is filled with just the opposite. Open the book of Proverbs and you're going to find the, the description of the ant and the sluggard. Anybody ever read that? Okay. The ant, the sluggard says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow may never come. The ant, on the other hand, is working really hard setting aside for the day of harvest. And the Bible says it is the ant that is wise and blessed. So there's nothing wrong with saving. Again, it's how those resources are used. So the teaching of James is not to rebuke the obtaining or saving of the resources. It is to rebuke the selfish and self-centered way those resources are used and how those resources have been gained wrongly. Now, the theme of this part of James should be trouble. The Christians that he's writing to, many of them are suffering many trials, including economic trials by the hands of their rich brothers and sisters within the church. This suffering would easily make them become discouraged or resentful against their brothers and sisters, or it may make them uh, be tempted to long for the same materialism and materialistic attitudes that are plaguing uh, the rich people within the church. So while in this passage, James offers comfort and guidance to those who are being oppressed, his main focus is to deal with those who are causing the trouble. Now very quickly, if I might, I would just like to again walk through this, uh, these verses uh, one or two at a time. Look at verse 1 again. Look at what he says. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What James is telling them, he says... Though you may not know it, though you may not realize it right now, the thing that you have placed your trust in is going to one day bring you great trouble. He says, you don't understand. Your faith is not mature enough to understand. I'm trying to open your eyes. The thing that you have placed your hope and trust in one day is going to bring you great trouble. Now, we're no different today. It may not be money. Uh, sometimes guys put their hopes in the girl that they want to marry or the vice versa. We put our hopes in jobs or we put our hopes in, in our health. All of those things ultimately will fail. Well, this is what they're doing. They have placed their trust in their wealth. Look in verses 2 and 3. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now note the language here. It's startling. I mean, it's startling the language that James is using. He uses the phrases like, um, uh, uh, he uses the phrase like moth-eaten and rotted and destroyed by fire and corroded. What he's doing here, he's saying you are placing your trust in those things that will pass away. You are placing your trust in those things that are not eternal in nature. Again, we are guilty many times of doing exactly the same thing. 
It reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 3 and verse 17 when he, sings, when he says those things that are not eternal in nature, uh, particularly wheat and chaff is what he calls them in that passage, will not survive but rather will be burned up. So you have these Christians and they have a certain level of resources and wealth and, and they're immature in their faith and they're placing their hope in their status. Their money, their financial uh, resources brings them certain status within the community. And they're placing their hope in these things. And James is bringing a very, very harsh rebuke against them, saying these things will fail you. There's not a person of, any, of certain age in this room who can't relate to understanding that you've placed your hope in something that ultimately failed you. Because it was not eternal in nature. It is those things that are eternal in nature. Those are the only things that will never fail us. You believe that? Say amen. Amen? All right. So that last phrase in verse 3 is very interesting. He says, James says, you have laid up treasure uh, for the last days. What he is saying here is that you have hoarded selfishly for yourselves your resources. You have kept them back. And those things that you think will provide you security in the difficult times... Those things that you think provide you hope will actually bring calamity upon you because you have hoarded them for yourselves and they will become a negative in your life instead of a positive. Now one of the reasons for this is the way they obtain their money. Look in verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now the understanding that we get here is that these people were hired to do a certain job, but the rich people did not pay them for their work. And the phrase there, kept back by fraud, didn't mean that they held back their part of their pay for taxes or some other reason. It means that they stole it. They stole their money. The gain that they were getting was by not paying what they should have rightfully paid to the laborers, and they have hoarded it for themselves. They have stolen the money from the workers, and the workers will never see this money that is owed to them. Now, this is wrong. We know this is wrong. And if you're an employer here, if you have people under your care, pay them a fair wage. In fact, if possible, be generous to them. But the application for most of us who, who don't have employees under us and we're not paying uh, is not to obtain our resources wrongly. Now, our first thought is, well, I'm not stealing from anybody, and I'm not doing wrong. I'm not knocking off the bank every Friday afternoon or, or the Brinks truck when it comes in to pick up the cash. So that doesn't deal with me. It does deal with us, absolutely, and I'll touch on that in just a moment. Look how they gained this, uh, this how they used this money that had been wrongly gained. Look in verse 5. James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, this is not just having stuff. I will tell you that uh, Sheila and I have moved a number of times in our life. And every time we move, we, uh, we say the same thing. We look at each other and we go, we got too much stuff, okay? These moves are, that's why I'm never moving again, folks. I'm dug in like a tick. I'm not packing that van up and going anywhere else. I'm just stuck. Well, I'm not, and we, I don't know how it happens. We seem to get rid of half of our stuff every time we move, but it multiplies. I'm not sure what happens in the storage bin. Everybody has stuff. This is not about having stuff. It is the absurd, morally wrong, self-indulgent lifestyle that these people were living. They were living in the lap of luxury. They took what was not theirs. 
Now the money was theirs to begin with. The resources was theirs. It was rightfully theirs. But they took money that they were supposed to pay these people for doing certain jobs and they kept it for themselves in order that they might live an indulgent lifestyle. And what James says, he says, you have fattened yourself up for the day of slaughter or more accurately what this passage means is for the day of judgment. And what James is saying, he says, you're going to stand before God for this. Not only will you receive a rebuke in this life, you're going to answer to God for how you've used the resources. And the reason why that we're going to look at here in a moment is because those resources were never yours to begin with. They thought what they had was theirs. As believers, we say we believe that what we have is God's. Amen? Let me have an amen to that. What we have, everything we have belongs to God. Amen? It's important. Y'all need to agree with me before we get to our next point here in just a moment. Now, do we live that way? It's hard. I mean, it's, it's difficult. We all go to work and get a paycheck and we think what's ours is ours. And, but we believe and we understand and we're progressing on this, faith, uh, this uh, faith, journey of faith to understand that everything really does belong to the Lord. Well, these people were living as though everything they had belonged to them and they were wrongly taking money that they were supposed to pay to the workers. Look at the result, verse 6. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now this touches on many levels, many levels. But the simplest is this. James says, because of your actions, you have made the life of your workers much more difficult. You are taking from them what they need to survive. You have stolen from them. And this people who love the Lord, they will not resist you. There's, they, there's many different levels there. But it simply says, what you're doing is causing hardship to the people who are depending upon that wage to live their daily lives. They don't live in the lap of luxury. They don't have everything at, at beck and call that they may need. They're living mostly from day to day, day to day. And what James is telling these people, you have taken what is not yours, and now you have caused trouble for those who are in need of this. Now, this is not a very good picture. This is not something that uh, uh, should be named within the church, especially among those who claim to be the redeemed of Jesus Christ, who have been born again and bought by His blood and sealed for that wonderful day of redemption. And yet this is exactly what was taking place. Now, the reality of what the church is supposed to be is the exact opposite of this. The picture that we just see James painting of the way these people were living their lives in accordance to the resources that God had given them... The picture that we actually find in the scripture is just the opposite of this. Now, I'm a big fan of Mythbusters. Anybody a big fan of Mythbusters? I've got a few. I love, I love that show. In fact, over the New Year week, they, had the, they showed all 18 seasons without stop. It was really cool. I spent too many hours in front of the TV watching the Mythbusters um, uh, bust their myths. So I'm going to do the best I can to bust what I think two myths uh, uh, are that go along with this passage. And the first myth is this. This one is about the rich... So it does not deal with me. This one is about the rich. So it does not deal with me. In this church, there are varying levels of wealth and resource. And while some are probably considered more wealthy than others, all of us in this room have more than about 68% of the rest of the entire planet combined. A study put out by Forbes in 2013 
uh, found this. The bottom 10% of Americans in personal wealth, the bottom 10% of Americans in personal wealth have more than 68% of the remaining world population. Think about that. The bottom 10% of those in this nation have more than 68% of the remaining population on the planet. That's an amazing statistic. Now, I I realize everything is relative. We don't live in a third world country. I, I get it. I understand. But the numbers are still amazing. But if we were to teach this passage in a third world nation, in a poor nation... They would probably tell us and look to us here in this world, in, in this country, and they would consider us the wealthy when we look at this passage. Because according to them, according to what they have, we are the wealthy. Folks, this deals with us. The point is fairly simple. We do have a certain level of resources at our disposal. Now, it may be a lot. It may be nothing more than the widow's might, but we have a certain level of resources at our disposal, and we are to make sure that we are using those resources as the Lord wills and not hoarding it selfishly on ourselves. Acts chapter 2 is a wonderful passage. I preached Acts chapter 2, I bet, two dozen times in my ministry career. I love Acts chapter 2. But um, uh, Luke paints this picture of what the early church looks like. In Acts 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, he wrote these words. He said, all, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now you compare that picture to what we just read in James. It's a complete opposite. The early church came together and had all things in common. And if I had something that a brother was in need of, I gave it to the brother because he had a greater need than I had. That was the attitude of the first church. It's not the attitude anymore. And we can preach another sermon about that some other time. But I will say this just in comparison. This church, according to Luke, was adding to their number day by day. How big a building or number of buildings would we have to add if we were adding to our number here at South Campbellsville Baptist Church day by day? This church was impacting its world for Christ. They had all things in common because that is the spirit that we have. So we are to use our resources rightly, whatever they may be. The second myth I want to try to bust this morning is this. And that's that we do not obtain our resources wrongly. Now, I'm sure no one's, like I said, knocking off a bank or sticking up old ladies at the grocery store. I'm sure no one is doing that or going house to house during Christmas season and stealing little kids' presents. But the understanding of this passage, just like last week, is that all that we have belongs to God. Our time, like we talked about last Sunday, our talents, if you have a talent, you should be using it for the Lord's glory. And also our resources. All of these things belong to the Lord and they are not ours. And I know that you agree with that because a while ago you said amen. Amen. So I, I know you're right in line with me. We are taught in the Bible that we are to help others. One of the many passages that teaches this is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. When the writer of Hebrews says this, And do not forget to do good and to share with others... For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Just such a simple statement. Be sure to do good. Be sure to share with others from what God has given you. From the bounty that you have, whatever it may be, as much as you can, be sure to share it with others. 
So when we have the opportunity and we're led by the Holy Spirit of God to help others and we do not help those resources that God has given to us, we have obtained wrongly. Now we can dispute this if you want. I'll be willing to have this discussion with anybody. But if the Lord is telling you to help a brother or sister in need and you say no to that, that amount of resources, whether it's a dollar or $10,000, a car house, I don't know what it may be, you are keeping that resource wrongly. Because God says this, and listen, we're all guilty of this. I'm as guilty as anybody, okay? But here's what God says. I've given it to you, Ron. Now, Ron, I want you to give it to person A. And my attitude ought to be, well, it's never mind to begin with. I never did own it. I just kept it for a while. Lord, you want me to give it to somebody else? There you go. But what do we do? What do I do? Let me make it personal. I go, I don't know about that. I might could use that one day. You know, I know I've got 10 of them in the shed out back, but I might need 11, so I'm just going to hold on to that right now. Well, Lord, what am I going to do? You know, I worked really hard for this. I work, go to work every day. What, what? That's an, I've had that attitude. See, God says, I gave it to you. It's mine. It's not yours. Now give it away. That's what the early church did, but that's not what was happening in the book of James. And if you and I do that, we have obtained those resources wrongly. Now let me get a little more personal. We're also taught in the Bible to give tithes and offerings to the church. And this is not a... a, a uh, a stewardship series. We will preach a stewardship series, I promise you. I went to a church one time, uh, and I was told that in the history of that church, it was a new church, only five years old, that in the history of that church, no one had ever preached on stewardship. And I said, you're going to hear one from me really quickly because we're going to preach the whole counsel of the word. So let me pull out Matthew chapter, uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. This is what it says. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes? And contributions. Folks, these are not my words. They are the words of God's prophet Malachi spoken hundreds of years ago, but they're as true today as they were then. When we do not follow the biblical teaching of giving tithes and offerings to God, they belong to God, they were always God's, and when we do not rightly follow the teachings of Scripture and tithe, if you want to go the 10%, that's fine, and we keep it back to ourselves, we have obtained those resources wrongly. Because they were never ours to begin with. And the rightful owner of that says, Hey, in appreciation and in showing that you understand that it all belongs to me to begin with, I'm giving this edict so that you'll have the right attitude toward your finances and resources. You give 10% to the Lord. The Lord doesn't need that money. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't want to tithe, don't tithe. You think, you think a church is all about money? Put your money with the, somebody else. That's fine. I'll never ask you to tithe. But I'm going to teach the Bible. And I'm going to tell you, if God has given you something and He gives us a requirement to follow it, we're supposed to do it. And if we don't do it, we have kept those things back wrongly. What the Bible says is that we have robbed from God. Now, this is just an example. And it's not meant to condemn. I don't think anybody does this intentionally. But let me give you an example that's personal in this church. We average roughly 140 people in this church every Sunday. And we average roughly $37.50 a week in tithes and offerings. Do the math if you can really quick. That comes out to $26.78 per person. That means on the 10% scale, we're making 268 bucks a week. Now, I realize there are a lot of children and youth, and, and those, those folks don't tithe. I understand that. But the numbers still work, and they're telling. If we're averaging 140 people in church, and we're rightly following the Scriptures, 
then guess what? We should never have financial trouble at church if we're being wise stewards of those things. And I don't tell you this to condemn because I fight the same battle when it comes to tithing that you fight. Lord, I got this amount of money in the checking account, so what do I do? I'm glad to say that for most of my career, most of my life, Sheila and I have tithed. Okay, there have been seasons when we've struggled with it, to be honest with you. But the biblical teaching is this. If I hold back my tithes and offerings, I have robbed from God and I have obtained those resources wrongly according to the Scripture. Now again, I realize no one's doing this uh, intentionally. It's just the way it is, we say. But unfortunately, the problem with that is that it does not align with the Bible. And I show you these examples because it's far too easy to read James chapter one, uh, 5, 1 through 6 and see James bring this harsh rebuke against the rich and go, I, I, you know, I, that's not me. It doesn't deal with me. It absolutely deals with everybody in this room. Every one of us in this room, it deals with. And it applies to us. I said that was my final thought. I'm sorry, I have to apologize. This is my final thought. My final, final thought. You and I have the same problem that the people that read James' letter have. We have the same problem that the Israelites had when they were blessed. The people that James was writing to had so much. They had everything that they wanted and everything that they needed. Why in the world did they need God? I mean, when you have all this money and all these resources, you can buy anything that you want. You can buy health care, whatever you need. Why do you need God? We are no different today. Now, I realize everything is relative. There's some people richer or poorer or whatever it may be. But we live with a certain level of resources. We have so much. We're blessed with freedom. We can come in and sing these wonderful praise songs that are praise things. We have the freedom to open the word and knowing that no one is going to come in here from the county and throw us in jail because we're preaching the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. We have all these freedoms and we have health care and we have internet and we have Star Trek reruns that we can watch. Amen. Those are always important. We have all these things that we want. Why in the world do we need God? The Israelites' problem was they kept forgetting God. We have that same problem today. Everything we have belongs to God. And we are to use those things for the glory of God. And when God comes to us and says, your time is mine and this is what I'm requiring of you, our answer is, yes, sir, it's yours to begin with. Your resources are mine, and this is what I'm requiring. Yes, sir, Lord, absolutely. It was never mine to begin with. I will gladly do as you lead me to do. And to do otherwise puts you and me in 2017 in the same exact boat that the early church found themselves in that James was writing to. It's just that simple. So our call today, the challenge today is to examine our whole being, our time, our talent, our resources, and say, is it the Lord's? Am I willing to give up everything for the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Or am I going to hold these things back selfishly for myself? Folks, it's a great challenge as we enter 2018. We're hoping for a year of prosperity. Amen, aren't we? We're not hoping. No one's praying, Lord, make this year a hard year. We're praying for prosperity and blessings. Well, if God decides to bring us prosperity and blessings, the real test is going to be, what are we going to do with those things? Make sure you're the one like the early church, okay? That had all things in common and was willing to give it all away. And not the ones like James was writing to that was hoarding things to themselves. Stand with me for a word of prayer as our praise team comes this morning.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe it is infallible, inerrant, and true from cover to cover. Father, we pray that we would apply the truth of your word to our hearts today. Father, that we might respond rightly to your teaching. Lord, I just pray that your spirit might have the freedom in this place. We ask this in the name of Jesus. One last word before we come to invitation. It really boils down to this. It's an attitude of selfishness. It's an attitude of being. And we all deal with this. I can be the most selfish person in the world at times. My wife will say amen to that. It's an attitude of selfishness or it's an attitude of giving. If you're dealing with an attitude of selfishness, give it to the Lord. The Lord wants to use you to bless others. Give it to the Lord. Confess it as sin. Make it right. Ask God to give you an attitude of selflessness instead of selfishness. Because this is the way we show Christ by living out these types of teachings that his name may be glorified. There'll be pastors here at the altar. If God is leading you to make a decision today, make that decision. Do as he's leading you to do.